two uh, short readings from the New Testament. The first is the very end of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, so Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 44, Peter has been speaking about his realization that God is, is, is not partial, that the gospel is open to the Gentiles. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. Amen. Two more short passages from the New Testament. The first, Romans, the epistle to the Romans, chapters 6 and verses 1 to 5. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then finally, the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter four, reading verses one to six. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Amen. Uh, we, are, uh, we are in a point of starting new sermon series. Having started a new series on uh, the book of Hebrews last week, uh, I, I'm now starting another new sermon series uh, called Why This Church? 
Uh, there is a reason for why I'm running two sermon series in parallel. One of them is going to be most of our services. The other one is going to be a regular series that we look at at communion. So whilst we're going to be working our way through the book of Hebrews on the second, third, fourth and fifth Sunday, if there is one in the month, uh, for communion, which is our first Sunday in the month, I want to do a series that will run until it feels like it's run its course, looking at aspects of what it means to be this kind of church, what does it mean to be Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church? And I think here at Bloomsbury, we tend to think of ourselves as being a, a modern, liberal-minded, pragmatic kind of congregation. We relate well to our ecumenical partners in other Christian traditions, and indeed we take a positive stand in our interfaith relationships as well. So uh, just in case you didn't know all the pies that we have our fingers in, here's a few of them. We're part of churches together in Westminster and churches together in England. Ministers from Bloomsbury meet each month for breakfast with the clergy from other West End churches and we have good relationships with them. The Meet the Neighbour events that happen once every two or three months across Westminster, see people from Bloomsbury joining with people from other churches, uh, visiting each other kind of in a rotation to experience different Christian traditions, to share in worship and to find out a bit more about one another as, as we get to know our neighbours. We will shortly be welcoming the Reverend Canon Mark Oakley, the Canon Chancellor of St Paul's Cathedral, to preach at our church anniversary service here on the morning of the 1st of July. You do have that in your diaries, don't you? When I went to preach at St Paul's last year, did I mention that? Um, you know, we, we had about 600 people present, uh, so could, do you think we could, think we could manage that for him when he comes back here in a few weeks' time? Uh, I'm part of the Interfaith Group for Dignity in Dying. And I was part of a fascinating meeting only uh, just the week before last, where we were having a conversation with Joan Bakewell about, you know, relating to her series on uh, we, we Have to Talk About Death. And she was wanting to find out what people from different faith traditions think about uh, the subject of dignity in dying, you know, assisted dying. And that was fascinating. I was sat there alongside Anglicans, Unitarians, Jews, um, people from other, other Christian traditions. I also represent Bloomsbury as part of the interfaith chaplaincy team at King's College London. In addition to all of this, we're deepening our relationships with other churches, synagogues and mosques through our involvement with London citizens. And our occasional series of Seth Stevens lectures, funded by the legacy that Seth left the church, has seen us hosting a variety of events looking at interfaith issues, including a memorable one where Archbishop Rowan Williams sat on this platform and had a public conversation with Mona Siddiqui, the Professor of Islamic Studies at Edinburgh University. So, having said all of that, it can come as something of a surprise when you drill down into what we actually stand for as a Baptist church. To discover that at the core of our identity remains a practice which is both fundamental and exclusionary. I'm talking, of course, about the practice of believers' baptism. And 
it's not only our church which is named after this ritual. We are part of Baptists Together, which is the new and apparently trendy name for the Baptist Union of Great Britain. And we support BMS World Mission, which is the new and apparently trendy name for the Baptist Missionary Society. And we're linked with the European Baptist Federation, and we're part of the Baptist World Alliance. We are, in case you hadn't noticed, Baptists. And historically speaking, Baptists fit into the general category known as separatism or separatists. This is the technical name for the kind of churches that emerged in England in the early, 19, early 17th century. Uh, it was kind of came out of the Puritan movement. It was people who were uh, impatient for a thoroughgoing reform of the British church along what they regarded as biblical principles. They were looking at what had gone on with uh, the Anabaptists, for example, in, in the continent, and were thinking, you know, we need to be having a similarly radical break here in England. Because, of course, the Reformation in England had been basically Henry VIII taking over all the Catholic churches and rebranding them Church of England, doing away with the Pope. But other than that, not a lot had changed on the ground. And these were people who were saying, we need a much more... Uh, stringent revolution in church life and uh, so some of them separated themselves from the established Church of England and it was out of this separatist tradition that the earliest British Baptists were to emerge so it's from this wider tradition of separatism which included the early Baptists but also a whole bunch of other people some of whom continued and some of whom died out it was out of separatism that Baptists got some of their key distinctives so one of the things we think we know about Baptists is that they have a commitment to scripture we're the people of the word or the people of the book and we shared that with other other separatists that the publication of the Bible in English and its free availability for people to read led to people saying, actually, we want to get back to biblical principles because we've actually got the Bible to read now, rather than it just being available in Latin and we needed a priest to tell us what it said. We also get our commitment to being a gathered church confined to those who have professed faith in Christ from separatism. This is a breakaway from the idea that if you live in the parish, you're part of the parish church. And separatists said, no, you know, the church is not understood geographically. It's understood on faith grounds. So we gather those who, who believe. Uh, you don't automatically belong to a congregation just because you live near it. Um, and we also get our practice of congregational church government from separatism. This is you know, where we, we take decisions ourselves uh, at a congregational level. We don't have somebody, a bishop or an archbishop, telling us what we must think or believe. Uh, another thing we get from separatism is a focus on simplicity in worship uh, with no resort to ceremony or ritual. Baptist and separatist services tended to be quite plain. Um, we've, got a, we've got a massive cross there now. You need to know that's a 1960s edition. I mean, I quite like it, don't get me wrong. It works for me, but it would absolutely not have worked for the early separatists and the early Baptists. They would have had none of that. That would, have, that would have been popish. They wouldn't have had that. So, you know, this is where we come from. But the Baptists actually went even further than the separatists 
Because what marked the Baptists as different from all these things which we shared with a bunch of other people was we also had a focus on baptism for believers. And also on insisting on full religious liberty for everyone, not just for ourselves. Um, We'll be coming back to some of these distinctives in future months uh, as we continue this series of communion sermons looking at the nature of the church. Uh, But today we're going to stick with the focus on believers' baptism. We'll come back to things like religious liberty and stuff in future sermons. One of the key figures in the emergence of the Baptists from the Separatists was a wealthy lawyer called Thomas Helwys. And he left England to go to Amsterdam in 1608 to escape persecution under King James I. Um, The king, obviously, was the head of the Church of England, and he really didn't like it that there were these people who were refusing to go to their parish church. They were refusing, they'd separated from the parish church. They were refusing to pay their tithes to the parish church. This was treasonous. So some of them fled to uh, seek religious freedom. And Helwys, together with a man called John Smith, went off to Amsterdam. And Helwys became the leader of an English-speaking separatist congregation in Amsterdam. There was much more religious liberty there in this period. And in 1609, this separatist group in Amsterdam became the first ever Baptist church when John Smith baptised himself. He had come to the conclusion, having explored England and the continent, that the true church had died out. He, you know, he spoke to some Anabaptists. He said, no, you're, you're not the true church. He knew the Catholics weren't the true church. He explored some of the uh, Protestant movements on the continent, and he came to the conclusion that they weren't the true church, and he knew the Church of England wasn't the true church. He said, it's gone. The church has died out. All these things that call themselves church, they're not church. Time to start it again. So he baptized himself, and then he baptized the rest of the congregation and restarted, in his view, the true church. I mean, it's quite a bold move, isn't it? I mean, you know, how would it be if I said, now, every other church on the whole history of the planet is not the church of Christ. They've all lost it. Let's start a new one this morning. Let's open up the baptistry. I'll go first, then you lot, and we'll start again. That's what he did. It was, it was this, I mean, this massively kind of hubristic approach to faith. Anyway, that's where we come from, and we need to know that. Two years later, uh, Helwys produced his now famous pamphlet, The Declaration of the English People, published in 1611. And he set out the view that each congregation, though they be but two or three, he says, have Christ given them, and that therefore they are the body of Christ. In other words, the body of Christ on earth is to be understood as the local gathered church of baptized believers. It's not the national church, it's not the state church, it's not the Roman church. It's not any other church, it's just us. We're it, he said. That's it, just two or three people, we're the body of Christ, nothing more needed. This was, as I'm sure you can appreciate, radical stuff. In one sentence, he challenged the entire basis of the establishment church. He challenged the episcopacy of church government, the authority of the monarch as the head of the church. I mean, if he just painted a massive target on his forehead and said, go on, pick on me, that might have been easier. 
So in 1612, he and a few others decided it was time to return to England and see if they could get this new church going back in their home country. And they came to London, to Spitalfields, and set up a congregation. And this was the first Baptist church on English soil. And those of you who were around here in 2012 may remember that we had the Baptist Assembly here in London specifically to mark 400 years since the first Baptist church on English soil. And we had quite a number of events here at Bloomsbury relating to that. Well, the practice of believers' baptism, as they enacted it, had two key distinctives, which are still with us in our practice of it today. Firstly, baptism was for those who were already believers, and secondly, it was by full immersion. They claimed, as Baptists have claimed ever since, that this, the basis for the practice of baptizing believers by immersion is to be found in the New Testament. It is, Baptists like to claim, the biblical option, as opposed to that thing which is practiced by all those other Christian groups, which tends to hold church tradition alongside their reading of scripture when they baptize infants. And it is on this practice of baptism for believers that we Baptists have historically speaking taken our big stand. However, while we are generally quite clear about what we do and don't do at baptism, it is for believers, it is not for children, it is for uh, by full immersion, it is not by sprinkling. We're often less clear about why. Baptists have typically not been so great at the theology of baptism as they have been at the practice of it. Uh, Ruth uh, Goldborn, former minister here, has often said that Baptists are pragmatists. We, we do it first and then theologize about it or think about it afterwards. So we adopted believers' baptism and quite literally on occasions, went to the stake over this, but didn't necessarily think through the significance of this dramatic break from the practice of pretty much every other Christian tradition. And the problem with our unswerving adherence to what we have claimed as a biblical position on baptism is that we have ended up, historically speaking, struggling to know where we stand in our ecumenical relationships. We don't always know how to relate to people from other Christian traditions. The hardline position that Baptists, uh, some Baptists take has been one of ecumenical non-engagement, where Baptists simply assert that they're right and everyone else is wrong. We are the only true church, and everybody else who insists on sprinkling infants is just apostate. This is the kind of Smith and Helwis position, you know, which led to John Smith baptizing himself and restarting the church. And whilst you do get this approach here in the UK, especially amongst those groups of Baptists who go by names something like strict or particular or grace Baptists, they tend to look at us with a bit of suspicion. Um, it has certainly, it's not the mainstream Baptist position in the UK, but it is the mainstream Baptist position for certain groups of Baptists globally, particularly in the southern states of America, and also for the many Baptist groups worldwide that have been very heavily influenced by American Baptist missions. The Southern Baptist Convention would very much see themselves as the guardians of the truth, 
they've actually separated from the Baptist World Alliance because they think the Baptist World Alliance has lost it at the moment, although they may come back at some point. Of course, thinking that you and you alone have the truth and that everyone else is wrong is a very attractive and secure place to be. The lure of fundamentalism is strong as people search for uncertainty, so people search for certainty in an uncertain world. I think it's one of the reasons that churches which offer very strong and definitive answers to life's questions can end up doing so well. Whereas churches like ours, which invite honest questioning of faith and intelligent engagement with matters of spiritual uh, engagement, can suffer because those looking for easy answers will end up getting those answers elsewhere. But as a thoughtful Baptist church, I think Bloomsbury is more in step with another approach to ecumenical engagement that you get amongst Baptists. Rather than adopting this kind of hardline, we're right and you're wrong position, most Baptist churches in the UK tend towards a kind of softer middle ground approach on baptism. Whereas we still assert on the basis of scripture that we think we're right, we temper this with a recognition that other Christian traditions don't see it the same way and that that doesn't mean they're not Christian and certainly therefore we shouldn't be falling out over it anymore. So in common with many other British Baptist churches, Bloomsbury has what we call open rather than closed membership. We welcome as members those whose initiation into faith has taken place in a tradition other than our own. And we do so without requiring those people to be baptised according to our convictions. Of course, we are more than willing to offer believers' baptism to those whose early life has included infant baptism, should they request it. And I have certainly baptised people over the years who were christened as, as babies. We hold that we can do this without compromising our commitment to there only being one baptism, because deep down, we still don't really think that infant baptism is truly baptism. It's just that we're, we're too nice and too ecumenical to make much of a fuss about it anymore. We are, as I said earlier, pragmatists. However, we might take some comfort here from the fact that there is strong historical precedent for this position of pragmatic compromise. The early British Baptists didn't exist in isolation from the other separatist traditions that I was speaking about earlier in the 17th century. From the very beginning, they were having to work out how they were going to relate to other Christians whose baptismal practice was very different to theirs. And we are the heirs of this tradition of compromise, just as the American Baptists are the heirs to the hardliners who could not live with compromise and so set sail for the new world, looking for a fresh start where everybody could get it right and compromise would be unnecessary. The early British Baptist context was clouded by the Civil War period, when Baptists found themselves fighting on the same side as other radical Protestants who were all aligned with Cromwell, but who differed on baptismal practice. To have declared them unchristian would have been politically rather disastrous if you're fighting alongside them in a war. And so we learned to live together fairly quickly with difference on baptism. And this is a skill which has stood Baptists in good stead down the centuries. 
we've negotiated other huge theological differences down the years on the basis that what holds us together is stronger than what would divide us. So we've negotiated massive disagreements about Calvinism versus Arminianism. You might not hear much about that these days, but trust me, it was once a huge thing that threatened to split the Baptists in half. We negotiated women in ministry. There are Baptist churches that do it, like ours. There are those that don't. And I hope we will find a way through the debates and divisions around something like same-sex marriage as we go into the future, on the same understanding that what unites us is greater than what divides us. This conviction that what we have in common is stronger than what we don't have in common has also helped us negotiate our baptismal practice differences with other denominations to such an extent that the Baptists have often played a key role in establishing major ecumenical initiatives. So the dissenting deputies, the Bible Society, the London Missionary Society, a whole raft of anti-slavery societies had the Baptists in these ecumenical movements really from the very beginning. And the upshot of all this is that we find ourselves in a strangely anomalous position as Baptists. On the one hand, in theory we are committed radically to the baptism of believers as the only biblical mode of baptism and as the sacrament of initiation into the true church. And on the other hand, in practice, we simply aren't that committed to it. That's the tension. It's a defining issue for us, except most of the time it isn't. Steve Holmes sums up the situation. He says, British Baptists find themselves in a curious position as a result of this tradition of ecumenical openness. They are in practice less committed to the importance of baptism in ecclesiology, that is their church life, than almost any other mainstream denomination. In most British Baptist churches, a person may be in membership or even leadership and may receive or even celebrate the Eucharist without being baptized either as a believer or as an infant. No other British denomination, excluding the Salvation Army, is as lax in its baptismal polity as mainline Baptists. You could not be a communicant member of an Anglican church without having been christened and confirmed. They would just say no. We're a Baptist church, and we just shrug our shoulders and go, oh, hey, it's fine. We're stuck, aren't we? We're in a really weird position, and we need to know this. This has led to an attempt by Baptists over the last few decades, really for the first time in our history, to start doing proper theology around what on earth we think is actually going on in baptism. Is there some theological common ground that we can find between our absolutist origins in a river in Amsterdam and the traditional practice of infant baptism that is found in almost every other Christian church? Or is the best we can hope for a kind of continuation of pragmatic coexistence and mutual respect? The conclusion of a Baptist report published in 2005 called Pushing the Boundaries of Unity suggested, and I'm quoting here, that Baptist congregations might recognize a place for the baptism of infants within the whole journey that marks the beginning of Christian life as well as challenging the practice of some churches in requiring a rebaptism of those who have been baptized as infants. Well, I was present at Baptist Union Council in 2006, which received the report, and it was not universally well received. 
Some welcomed it as a good way forwards in negotiating our baptismal difference with ecumenical partners, that we just kind of say, yes, we do recognize infant baptism has a role in a person's journey to faith, and we're not going to insist on rebaptism of people before they become members. Others felt this is just massively compromising our core beliefs that baptism should be for believers by full immersion, and that's the end of the story. And we were pretty much split at BU Council on this one. Uh, they ended up receiving the report but not commending it, which is just another Baptist fudge. So I wonder, what do you think? What is your understanding of your baptism if you have been baptised? Were you baptised as an infant? Were you baptised as a believer? Was it both for you? Was it not at all? If you're sitting here and you've never been baptised, do you know why you haven't been? I wonder if it may help if I share a little here of my own story, and please accept my apologies if you've heard a little of this before. I started attending a Baptist church before I was born, and I honestly cannot remember a time when I didn't have faith. Just as I never needed to be converted to the conviction that my mum loved me, neither did I need converting to the love of God. When I was 10 years old, I was attending a baptismal service, which in those days were held on a Sunday evening. And the church was full to overflowing. It was a different era. I was sat up in the balcony at the church in Sevenoaks, sat at the back, leaning against the large leaded window. We were singing the hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea. And the baptisms were taking place in between each verse. And when we got to the last verse... Just as I am of that free love, the breadth, length, depth, and height to prove. Here for a season, then above, O Lamb of God, I come. I just knew with absolute conviction that I needed to take a step of faithful witness and to seek baptism as the next step of my walk with God. For me, it was an act of obedience and also a marking of a definite commitment to faithfully seek God in the life, teachings, and witness of Jesus. So I went to speak to the minister after the service, and he told me I was far too young, and that I should come back if I still felt the same when I was 14. He then said something very interesting, which was that I could start taking communion if I wanted to. Well, whether he knew it or not, and I suspect he did, the distinction he was making between admission to the table and admission to the pool has been one of the key areas of disagreement between Baptists over baptismal practice. We're going to come back to communion uh, in a future sermon in this series, so I won't go into it in depth now. But just as we've already mentioned open membership, where you can be a member of a Baptist church without undertaking believers' baptism, there is a parallel debate in terms of the open table, whether you should be admitted to communion if you're not baptised as a believer. The reason we tend to allow an extra quarter of an hour for our communion services, and we basically run a normal service and then tack communion on the end, is an echo of a much earlier practice where you would have your normal service and then stop 
and the unbaptized would leave and only the baptized would remain for the extra 15 minutes of communion at the end of the service. Well, we stopped asking people to leave because we have an open table, but you can still hear an echo of that, can't you, in our, our practice month by month. Well, my minister um, at the time, who, who told me that I could take communion but not be baptized, had trained at Spurgeon's College. And the offer he made me of taking communion whilst still unbaptized could have come straight from the mouth of the great 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon himself. Because Spurgeon believed in closed membership, but an open table. Anyone can take communion, but only the baptized can be members. That was Spurgeon's position. However, to finish my story, I declined his offer. I can remember thinking with all the logical clarity of a 10-year-old that if I wasn't old enough to be acceptable to Jesus in baptism, then the same must surely apply to communion. So for the next four years, I sat there staring fixedly at the minister every time we had communion, firmly passing the bread and wine with my mouth clamped shut. And shortly after my 14th birthday, I went back to him and this time my request for baptism was accepted. So what, what changed for me at baptism? I certainly didn't become a Christian in the water, and neither did the Holy Spirit descend on me in a new and definitive way. To the best of my memory, I just felt wet and cold afterwards. But something had definitely changed. I had made my promises, and I intended to keep them. I often describe baptism as being a bit like a wedding, because both are places where people make their promises in church. And the thing about a wedding is that you're no more in love after you have said, I will, than you were before. And in fact, a wedding that is not built on a foundation of already existing love is probably deficient. But nonetheless, something changes at the moment the promises are given. The unmarried become married. And so with baptism. At one level, nothing changes. Faith is already present, and if it isn't, then the good Baptist in me still wants to argue that something is deficient, which is why, deep down inside, I'm not reconciled to infant baptism. Words of commitment spoken before God and a congregation don't change faith. You're a Christian before, you're a Christian after. And just as the exchange of rings at a wedding doesn't make a marriage, neither does the action of immersion into water make a Christian. But promises and action do still make a difference. Some Baptists argue that baptism is a merely symbolic act, an enacted sermon, if you like, which witnesses publicly to the faith of the person being baptised. However, whilst I'm sure that baptism does do this, I don't think this is all that it does. It seems to me that there is more to baptism than mere symbolism. I find something deeply sacramental in the act, which takes us beyond what we do in obedience to Christ's command, into a consideration of what God does in the moment of baptism. Have you heard the classic definition from St. Augustine of a sacrament as an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace? Well, we may not have the full seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. We are Baptists, after all. I still think, though, that even within the Baptist tradition, there exist those moments where God meets us in our action of obedience, active by his Spirit to bring an act of grace into our lives. I do think something changes 
in the person being baptized at the point of baptism. Just as something changes in a person at the point of their wedding vows, just as something changes in us when we share bread and wine at communion. This is not a merely symbolic meal, but that's a sermon for another week. One of the significant outworkings of a more sacramental understanding of baptism has been on the Baptist engagement with our ecumenical relationships that I was speaking about earlier. We are discovering through learning to speak of baptism as a sacrament that we have more common ground with our Anglican and Methodist and Roman Catholic sisters and brothers in Christ than we had previously realized. Because they too stress the action of God in baptism, either alongside or indeed sometimes over and above the action of the baptismal candidate. One of the things is if you're, if you're baptizing a baby, it's really all about what God does and absolutely nothing about what the baby does. In the Baptist tradition, we have tended to make it more about what we do and lost what God does. But if we are rediscovering the action of God in baptism, then we have more in common with our ecumenical partners than we may have previously realized. And so we will come next Sunday to an open pool. We shall be sharing with Tommaso in his baptism. He sends his regards. He's with his family in Italy this weekend. He's looking forward to being back with us next weekend. I will just say it is not quite too late for anyone else who wants to to join him in the pool. If you would like to explore this, please speak to me afterwards. But back to today. I've started this monthly communion series on the nature of the church by looking at baptism. Because as we're going to discover as the months tick by, it informs many of the other themes that we will be exploring. It's the starting point for what it means for a church like Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church to be who it is. And it draws us, I think, to the table, to a re-remembrance of the death and resurrection of Christ, just as those who are baptized are buried and raised with Christ. So we will share bread and wine in another sacramental act, remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I shall be inviting all those who love God and seek him in Jesus Christ to join in bread and wine, as once again we are recreated and remembered as Christ's body. So let us pray. Great God of love, we have gathered in your presence to meet with you, and you have met with us at our point of deepest need by giving yourself utterly to us. Living God of the cross, where we are scared, you have comforted us. Where we are weak, you have strengthened us. Where we are sorrowful and lonely, you have sat alongside us and offered us peace. And in our encounter with you, we have seen your deepest nature revealed. As we meet you in the body of Christ, broken for us and shared among us for our salvation, 
we understand more of your great plan for the salvation of the world. You are not a God of war, violence, tribalism or territorialism. You do not ask your followers to march to victory in your name to establish your kingdom on the earth by means of force and coercion. Rather, you are the God of the cross, the God of self-giving love, the God who is poured out for others and broken for all. You are the God who gives and gives and gives with no expectation of reward or repayment. And it is in your name as your people that we come now to pray for the needs of your world, offering ourselves as the answers to our prayers, even as we lay them before you, because we are your body and this is your world. We pray for the relationships between countries and for those who take decisions about the way different peoples will coexist on this fragile planet. We hear stories of posturing and protectionism, of militarism and negotiation, and it can be hard to know where truth is to be found. So we pray for America, for North Korea, for China, for Israel, for Palestine, for Syria, for Iraq, for the countries of Europe, and for our own country. Give courage to those who seek the path of peace and who speak up for the voice of the oppressed and the impoverished. We pray for all those who are victims of terrorism, because we know that once an incident has faded from the headlines, it continues to affect those involved. We think especially of those affected by the London Bridge and Manchester Arena attacks, this time last year. Be with those who seek to speak words of reconciliation to those who are in danger of radicalization. May ideologies of competition between religions and cultures give way to peaceful coexistence and a depth of relationship across boundaries that often divide. And as we come to an end of a month where we have seen beautiful weather and spectacular thunderstorms, we pray for our care of your world. May we discover ways of living that minimise the harm we do to the planet and the animals and plants that we share it with. Help us to take good decisions about our consumption and to be mindful of the effects that our actions have on others. We thank you for the scientists who help us understand issues such as climate change and pollution. And we pray for politicians who take policy decisions about the way industry will be regulated. And we pray also for ourselves, that we will be alert to issues that it is often so easy to ignore. In all these prayers, we offer ourselves to you as your body broken and raised to new life for the purposes of building your peaceable kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. <laughs>